Chapter Five, Part One of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. During his fourth week at the Lido, Gustav von Aschenbach made several sinister observations touching on the world about him. First, it seemed to him that as the season progressed, the number of guests at the hotel was diminishing rather than increasing, and German especially seemed to be dropping away, so that finally he heard nothing but foreign sounds at table and on the beach. Then one day, in conversation with the barber, whom he visited often, he caught a word which startled him. The man had mentioned a German family that left soon after their arrival. He added glibly and flatteringly, "'But you are staying, sir. You have no fear of the plague.' Aschenbach looked at him. "'The plague?' he repeated. The gossiper was silent, made out as though busy with other things, ignored the question. When it was put more insistently, he declared that he knew nothing, and with embarrassing volubility he tried to change the subject. That was about noon. In the afternoon there was a calm, and Aschenbach rode to Venice under an intense sun. For he was driven by a mania to follow the Polish children, whom he had seen with their governess taking the road to the steamer pier. He did not find the idol at San Marco, but while sitting over his tea at his little round iron table on the shady side of the square, he suddenly detected a peculiar odour in the air, which, it seemed to him now, he had noticed for days without being consciously aware of it. The smell was sweetish and drug-like, suggesting sickness and wounds and a suspicious cleanliness. He tested and examined it thoughtfully, finished his luncheon, and left the square on the side opposite the church. The smell was stronger where the street narrowed. On the corners, printed posters were hung, giving municipal warnings against certain diseases of the gastric system liable to occur at this season, against the eating of oysters and clams, and also against the water of the canals. The euphemistic nature of the announcement was palpable. Groups of people had collected in silence on the bridges and squares, and the foreigners stood among them, scenting and investigating. At a little shop, he inquired about the fatal smell, asking the proprietor, who was leaning against his door, surrounded by coral chains and imitation amethyst jewellery. The man measured him with heavy eyes, and brightened up hastily. "'A matter of precaution, sir,' he answered with a gesture, "'a regulation of the police, which must be taken for what it is worth. This weather is oppressive, the Sirocco is not good for the health. In short, you understand, an exaggerated prudence, perhaps. Aschenbach thanked him and went on. Also on the steamer, back to the Lido, he caught the smell of the disinfectant. Returning to the hotel, he went immediately to the periodical stand in the lobby and ran through the papers. He found nothing in the foreign language press. The domestic press spoke of rumors, produced hazy statistics, repeated official denials, and questioned their truthfulness. This explained the departure of the German and Austrian guests. Obviously, the subjects of the other nations knew nothing, suspected nothing, were not yet uneasy. To keep it quiet, Aschenbach thought angrily, as he threw the papers back on the table. 
to keep that quiet. But at the same moment he was filled with satisfaction over the adventure that was to befall the world about him. For passion, like crime, is not suited to the secure daily rounds of order and well-being, and every slackening in the bourgeois structure, every disorder and affliction of the world, must be held welcome, since they bring with them a vague promise of advantage. So Aschenbach felt a dark contentment with what was taking place, under cover of the authorities, in the dirty alleys of Venice. This wicked secret of the city was welded with his own secret, and he too was involved in keeping it hidden. For in his infatuation he cared about nothing but the possibility of Tadzio's leaving, and he realized with something like terror that he would not know how to go on living if this occurred. Lately he had not been relying simply on good luck and the daily routine for his chances to be near the boy and look at him. He pursued him, stalked him. On Sundays, for instance, the Poles never appeared on the beach. He guessed that they must be attending Mass at San Marco. He hurried there, and stepping from the heat of the square into the golden twilight of the church, he found the boy he was hunting, bowed over a prie-dieu, praying. Then he stood in the background, on the cracked mosaic floor, with people on all sides kneeling, murmuring, and making the sign of the cross. And the compact grandeur of this oriental temple weighed heavily on his senses. In front, the richly ornamented priest was conducting the office, moving about and singing, incense pouring forth, clouding the weak little flame of the candle on the altar, and with the sweet, stuffy, sacrificial odor, Another seemed to commingle faintly, the smell of the infested city. But through the smoke and the sparkle, Aschenbach saw how the boy there in front turned his head, hunted him out, and looked at him. When the crowd was streaming out through the opened portals into the brilliant square with its swarms of pigeons, the lover hid in the vestibule. He kept traitor cover, he lay in wait. He saw the Poles quit the church, saw how the children took ceremonious leave of their mother, and how she turned toward the piazzetta on her way home. He made sure that the boy, the nun-like sisters, and the governess took the road to the right through the gateway of the dock-tower and into the merceria, and after giving them a slight start, he followed, followed them furtively on their walk through Venice. He had to stand still when they stopped had to take flight in shops and courts to let them pass when they looked back. He lost them. Hot and exhausted, he hunted them over bridges and down dirty blind alleys, and he underwent minutes of deadly agony when suddenly he saw them coming towards him, in a narrow passage where escape was impossible. Yet it could not be said that he suffered. He was drunk, and his steps followed the promptings of the demon, who delights in treading human reason and dignity underfoot. In one place, Tazio and his companions took a gondola, and shortly after they had pushed off from the shore, Aschenbach, who had hidden behind some structure, a well, while they were climbing in, now did the same. He spoke in a hurried undertone, as he directed the rower, with the promise of a generous tip, to follow unnoticed, and at a distance, that gondola which was just rounding the corner. And he thrilled when the man, with the roguish willingness of an accomplice, assured him in the same tone that his wishes would be carried out, carried out faithfully. 
Leaning back against the soft black cushions, he rocked and glided toward the other black-beaked craft, where his passion was drawing him. At times it escaped, then he felt worried and uneasy, but his pilot, as though skilled in such commissions, was always able through sly manoeuvres, speedy diagonals and shortcuts, to bring the quest into view again. The air was quiet and smelly, the sun burned down strong through the slate-coloured mist. Water slapped against the wood and stone. The call of the gondolier, half warning, half greeting, was answered with a strange obedience far away in the silence of the labyrinth. White and purple umbels, with the scent of almonds, hung down from little elevated gardens over crumbling walls. Arabian window casings were outlined through the murkiness. The marble steps of a church descended into the water. A beggar squatted there, protesting his misery, holding out his hat, and showing the whites of his eyes as though he were blind. An antiquarian in front of his den fawned on the passer-by, and invited him to stop in the hopes of swindling him. That was Venice, the flatteringly and suspiciously beautiful, this city half-legend, half-snare for strangers, in its foul air, art once flourished gluttonously, and had suggested to its musicians suggestive notes which cradle and lull. The adventurer felt as though his eyes were taking him in this same luxury, as though his ears were being won by just such melodies. He recalled, too, that the city was diseased and was concealing through this greed, and he peered more eagerly after the retreating gondola. Thus, in his infatuation, he wanted simply to pursue uninterrupted the object that aroused him, to dream of it when it was not there, and, after the fashion of lovers, to speak softly to its mere outline. Loneliness, strangeness, and the joy of a deep belated intoxication encouraged him and prompted him to accept even the remotest things without reserve or shame with the result that as he returned late in the evening from Venice, he stopped on the second floor of the hotel, before the door of the boy's room, laid his head in utter drunkenness against the hinge of the door, and for a long time could not drag himself away, despite the danger of being caught and embarrassed in such a mad situation. Yet there were still moments of relief, when he came partly to his senses. "'Where to?' he would think, alarmed. Where to? Like every man whose natural abilities stimulate an aristocratic interest in his ancestry, he was accustomed to think of his forebears in connection with the accomplishments and successes of his life, to assure himself of their approval, their satisfaction, their undeniable respect. He thought of them now, entangled as he was in such an illicit experience, caught in such exotic transgressions. He thought of their characteristic rigidity of principle, their scrupulous masculinity, and he smiled dejectedly. What would they say? But then, what would they have said to his whole life, which was almost degenerate in its departure from theirs, this life under the bane of art, a life against which he himself had once issued such youthful mockeries out of loyalty to his father's, but which at bottom had been so much like theirs? He too had served, he too had been a soldier and a warrior like many of them, for art was a war, a destructive battle, and one was not equal to it for long these days. 
a life of self-conquest and of in-spite-offs, a rigid, sober, and unyielding life which he had formed into the symbol of a delicate and timely heroism. He might well call it masculine, or brave, and it almost seemed as though the eros mastering him were somehow peculiarly adapted and inclined to such a life. Had not this eros stood in high repute among the bravest of peoples, was it not true that precisely through bravery he had flourished in their cities? Numerous war-heroes of antiquity had willingly borne his yoke, for nothing was deemed a disgrace which the god imposed, an act which would have been rebuked as the sign of cowardice if they had been done for other purposes, prostrations, oaths, entreaties, abjectness, such things did not bring shame upon the lover, but rather he reaped praise for them. In this way his infatuation determined the course of his thoughts, in this way he tried to uphold himself, to preserve his respect, but at the same time, selfish and calculating, he turned his attention to the unclean transactions here in Venice, this adventure of the outer world which conspired darkly with his own and which fed his passion with vague lawless hopes. Bent on getting reliable news of the condition and progress of the pestilence, he ransacked the local papers in the city cafés, as they had been missing from the reading table of the hotel lobby for several days now. Statements alternated with disavowals. The number of the sick and dead was supposed to reach twenty, forty, or even a hundred and more and immediately afterwards every instance of the plague would be either flatly denied or attributed to completely isolated cases which had crept in from the outside. There were scattered admonitions, protests against the dangerous conduct of foreign authorities. Certainty was impossible. Nevertheless, the lone man felt especially entitled to participate in the secret and although he was excluded, he derived a grotesque satisfaction from putting embarrassing questions to those who did know, and as they were pledged to silence, forcing them into deliberate lies. One day at breakfast, in the large dining hall, he entered into a conversation with the manager, that softly treading little man, in the French frock-coat, who was moving amiably and solicitously about among the diners, and had stopped at Aschenbach's table for a few passing words. Just why, the guest asked negligently and casually, had disinfectants become so prevalent in Venice recently? It has to do, was the evasive answer, with a police regulation, and is intended to prevent any inconveniences or disturbances to the public health which might result from the exceptionally warm and threatening weather. The police are to be congratulated, Aschenbach answered, and after the exchange of a few remarks on the weather, the manager left. Yet that same day, in the evening, after dinner, it happened that a little band of strolling singers from the city gave a performance in the front garden of the hotel. Two men and two women, they stood by the iron post of an arc lamp, and turned their whitened faces up towards the large terrace where the guests were enjoying this folk recital over their coffee and cooling drinks. The hotel personnel, bellboys, waiters, and clerks from the office, could be seen listening by the doors of the vestibule. The Russian family, eager and precise in their amusements, had had wicker chairs placed in the garden in order to be nearer the performers, and they were sitting here in an appreciative semicircle. 
behind the ladies and gentlemen, in her turban-like kerchief, stood the old slave. Mandolin, guitar, harmonica, and a squeaky violin were responding to the touch of the virtuoso beggars. Instrumental numbers alternated with songs, as when the younger of the women, with a sharp, trembling voice, joined with the sweetly falsetto tenor in a languishing love duet. But the real talent and leader of the group was undoubtedly the other of the two men, the one with the guitar. He was a kind of buffo baritone, with not much of a voice, although he did have a gift for pantomime and a remarkable comic energy. Often, with his large instrument under his arm, he would leave the rest of the group, and, still acting, would intrude on the platform, where his antics were rewarded with encouraging laughter. Especially the Russians in their seats down front seemed to be enchanted with so much southern mobility, and their applause incited him to let himself out more and more boldly and assertively. Aschenbach sat on the balustrade, cooling his lips now and then, with a mixture of pomegranate juice and soda, which glowed ruby-red in his glass in front of him. His nerves took in the miserable notes, the vulgar crooning melodies, for passion lames the sense of discrimination, and surrenders in all seriousness to appeals which, in sober moments, are either humorously allowed for, or rejected with annoyance. At the clown's antics, his features bad, twisted into a set painful smile. He sat there relaxed, although inwardly he was intensely awake, for six paces from him, Tazio was leaning against the stone handrail. In the white-belted coat which he often wore at mealtimes, he was standing in a position of spontaneous and inborn gracefulness, his left forearm on the railing, feet crossed, the right hand on a supporting hip, and he looked down at the street singers with an expression which was hardly a smile, but only an aloof curiosity, a polite amiability. Often he would stand erect and, expanding his chest, would draw the white smock down under his leather belt with a beautiful gesture. And then, too, the aging man observed with a tumult of fright and triumph how he would often turn his head over the left shoulder in the direction of his admirer, carefully and hesitatingly, or even with abruptness, as though to attack by surprise. He did not meet Aschenbach's eyes, for a mean precaution compelled the transgressor to keep from staring at him. In the background of the terrace the women who guarded Tazio were sitting, and things had reached a point where the lover had to fear that he might be noticed and suspected. Yes, he had often observed with a kind of numbness now, when Tazio was near him, on the beach, in the hotel lobby, in the Piazza San Marco. They called him back, they were set on keeping him at a distance, and this wounded him frightfully, causing his pride unknown tortures, which his conscience would not permit him to evade. Meanwhile the guitar player had begun a solo to his own accompaniment, a street ballad popular throughout Italy. It had several tropes, and the entire company joined each time in the refrain, all singing and playing, while he managed to give a plastic and dramatic twist to the performance. Of slight build, with thin and impoverished features, he stood on the gravel, apart from his companions, in an attitude of insolent bravado, his shabby felt hat on the back of his head, so that a bunch of his red hair jutted out from under the brim. And to the thrumming of the strings, 
he flung his jokes up at the terrace in a penetrating recitative, while the veins were swelling on his forehead from the exertion of his performance. He did not seem of Venetian stock, but rather of the race of Neapolitan comedians, half pimp, half entertainer, brutal and audacious, dangerous and amusing. His songs were stupid enough so far as the words went, but in his mouth, by his gestures, the movements of his body, the way of blinking significantly and letting the tongue play across his lips, it acquired something ambiguous, something vaguely repulsive. In addition to the customary civilian dress, he was wearing a sport shirt, and his skinny neck protruded above the soft collar, bearing a noticeably large and active Adam's apple. He was pale and snub-nosed. It was hard to fix an age to his beardless features, which seemed furrowed with grimaces and depravity, and the two wrinkles standing arrogantly, harshly, almost savagely, between his reddish eyebrows were strangely suited to the smirk on his mobile lips. Yet what really prompted the lonely man to pay him keen attention was the observation that the questionable figure seemed also to provide its own questionable atmosphere. For each time they came to the refrain, the singer, amid buffoonery and familiar handshakes, began a grotesque circular march which brought him immediately beneath Aschenbach's place, and each time this happened there blew up to the terrace from his clothes and body a strong carbolic smell. End of chapter 5 Part 1